This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. So what the hell is exactly blockchain or cryptocurrency? There's been a lot of noise recently about these terms and bitcoins and some of its hype and some of it are points to importantly focus on. But really, how is this actually going to change the way our institutions function? If there are new currencies out there, does that get rid of the very notion of banks? If there are new ways in which you can have more transparent elections, does that change the notion of government? Blockchain's applications are far and wide and vast and frankly have yet to be fully realized, but the very notion of what exactly it is, how it works, and what its applications could be used for are still being figured out studiously by one of the most foremost labs in the country focused on understanding, applying, and creating blockchain solutions, Consensus. Joining American Enough today is the Chief Strategy Officer for the Blockchain Laboratory Consensus, Sam Kassat. Taking a look at the technology, you see benefits of increased transparency, accurate tracking, permanent ledgers through distributed ledger, reduced cost reductions. But unknowns are how complex the actual technology has to get, what the regulatory implications might be, what the implementation challenges might be. Blockchain also has the potential for applications far beyond just paying for stuff. In fact, by using a decentralized peer-to-peer network of phones and computers connected to the internet to verify every single transaction, blockchain technology can actually keep a record of every single transaction that takes place across a peer-to-peer network. Just think about that. That's not just a transaction of you downloading a song from the internet. It's also you making sure that you're signing a petition and that blockchain making sure that that petition doesn't get counterfeited or forged with signatures in any way. A transaction on the internet could include you checking out your bank account and moving money across. And blockchain technology can ensure that that money gets exactly where it needs to go because of that decentralized approach of that money no longer being tied to just one-to-one banking transactions. The major innovation is that the technology allows market participants to transfer assets any kind of assets across the internet without the need for a centralized third party. Now, if all of this is sounding kind of bogus or hokey, we'll listen into what Sam has to say about the true benefits and authenticity of blockchain. But we had a chance to interview Sam Kassat of Consensus Labs on the margins of the UN General Assemblies at the Concordia Summit this year. And if you just think about this very notion of transferring assets across the internet without the need of a centralized third party, And you think of the UN General Assemblies, a literal gathering of all the centralized governments of around the world. Then one has to ask, does the development of blockchain technology, of cryptocurrencies, of Bitcoin, of all these buzzwords, does it undercut the very notion of institutions? And does it undercut the very notion of American institutions? Sam Cassatt joins the pod. This is American Enough with your host, Vikram Iyer. This is an incredible year in the history of the world where we not only have a convening every fall of the UN General Assembly is one of the most revered multilateral institutions comprised of countries 
from all around the world. Um, but we also have a moment in time where a company that Sam Cassett helped build, Consensus, uh, is also arguably building tools that in a way are disrupting those very notions of traditional institutions. Not disrupting in the Silicon Valley sense of the word, but actually creating a new distribution model for the way banking transactions can happen, voting can happen, um, even buying things on the internet could happen. Uh, we colloquially refer to it as cryptocurrencies or blockchain, but I think it is much deeper than that. And Sam, it's, it's great to have you today here on American Enough. Great to be here. Can, can you tell us exactly what Consensus does and whether that characterization of a distributed ledger through blockchain technologies is right, that it is sort of decentralizing or redistributing the way that traditional institutions are structured? Sure. Uh, so I can answer that on a few levels. On, on one level, Consensus is a venture studio company and also uh, a set of consulting organizations. Uh, so we build and fund companies that, that work on blockchain technology. Uh, and then we also have a, an arm of our company that helps organizations like government, central banks, Fortune 50 companies understand that technology, implement that technology, um, often using a lot of the infrastructure that we've developed uh, in our portfolio companies. So that's the sort of business high level of what we're doing. At a deeper level, what we are doing is trying to build the new rails of the economy. Uh, and that sounds very lofty, but what I mean by that is by building technology that doesn't require any intermediaries, it doesn't require any central locus of control in order to execute financial transactions, in order to execute really any piece of logic that you can write down in a piece of computer code with no central control point, um, we can start to take away some of the cost and friction and supplant some of the normal functions of institutions uh, that we normally think of as pretty inherent to the way we construct our lives. So, for instance, normally I need banks in order to send money. Uh, at the end of the day, a bank needs to sign off on it. Uh, PayPal needs to be regulated by institutions that sign off on it in order to send money even through their own platform. That's why it doesn't operate in certain countries. Um, something like Ethereum or uh, Bitcoin allows you to send transactions globally almost instantaneously uh, without that friction and without a central control point, with no, with no company like PayPal in the middle. You know, most people don't realize that uh, there is no company that controls Bitcoin, for instance. Um, Further than that, the logical underpinnings of contract law, for instance, that allow people to do business, that allow them to open a bank account, to have an agreement with another company, those things all require intermediaries and administrators in the forms of court systems, in the forms of regulators, in the forms of police to enforce the decisions of a court. Um, and what we do is we build technology that allows people to directly agree with each other, directly enact those decisions, based on a technology platform that you can trust its behavior, um, much like you trust the behavior of a bank or a government, uh, but at much lower cost and without a central control point. So in a way that, that restructures some of the, way we, the ways we might approach institutions. So you mentioned um, Ethereum and Bitcoin. These are sort of two very culturally significant cryptocurrencies. Um, you, in those examples, 
What exactly is different with this sort of purchasing power that removes those centralized institutions that a PayPal or a traditional banking system has? What, what, to me, if, I, if I'm a, you know, naive about the entire world of blockchain, if I take a look at Bitcoin, it looks like that B or, on the, or the, you know, however the logo of that coin might be could be no different than a P for PayPal. I'm still clicking something. I'm still divesting mon, uh, monies or some value from a point A to a point B. In that in-between, what's being distributed differently here that makes this so groundbreaking? So the main difference is what we call decentralization. So when you send a dollar to someone on PayPal, what you do is you send a message to PayPal's central servers, which are located, I don't know, but probably in Virginia or probably in various locations throughout the world. Um, and when, when you send a message to their server, their server says, you know, take $1 out of Sam's account and put $1 in Vikram's account. Um, but there's a central control point that is owned by and controlled by PayPal Incorporated uh, that, that manages that, that you know, needs to be compliant with regulations, that is their service to the world. The difference between that and something like the Ethereum network is that instead of having a central server in Virginia or something, uh, what I have is a bunch of volunteers from all over the world that are running the same software. They're running an Ethereum client. Um, and by all of those computers owned by volunteers connecting together, they can process the same notional construct. They, they, they can process the same deduction from my account and uh, addition to your account uh, without having a central server. Hmm. And essentially the way they do that is by reaching consensus. Uh, our company is called Consensus, which is no coincidence. I see what you did there. <laughs> uh, um, and so by, by all of these volunteer computers from all over the world reaching consensus, um, what they've done is they've, had, they've given the same functionality to that network that you would normally need a central control point for. Or you might, in the, in the very big picture, need correspondent banks to allow banks to send money to each other. Uh, where normally you need an intermediary and normally you need a central control point. Um, instead, we have a network comprised of volunteers that are governed by their own voluntary behavior that serves the same functionality. So in a sense, would it be a fair characterization to say that it can operate like a decentralized internet? Like instead of just one concentrated server, um, you have multitude of, of, of live connected devices that are able to process that same transaction. So it's, it's not only a decentralized node instead of just one banking institution, but it's also verified by each of those servers that are processing that transaction. Yeah, exactly. So part of what makes it work is that all of those computers all over the world are verifying the transaction, which makes it very hard to cheat. Um, but yeah, it, it would be fair to say it's, it's a decentralized system. And so we talked about the financial uh, possibilities of this. What are some other use cases that you've seen, um, you know, either through your, uh, through consensus or just like in the, the broader vision of the world of where blockchain technology is going to apply? What are some other use cases? So uh, I, I think the analogy of a new kind of internet is an apt one, okay. uh, where some people say the internet as we currently conceive of it is the internet of information and blockchain is the internet of value. Uh, you know, I would also think of it like if the, the internet is the nervous system of our planet, maybe, uh, maybe blockchain is the vascular system. It's, it's the things that bring nutrients, bring resources uh, to, to the rest of the world. 
So um, the, the way I can think of it is that um, we are, it, instead of just transmitting information, we are providing a substrate for anything logical and unique and valuable to move around. So one instance is uh, music rights, right? Music rights aren't normally something we think of like a, a currency or a dollar, uh, but they do have value and, and their uniqueness is something that's important. So we actually have a platform called Ujo right now that is uh, a platform for artists to upload their music and to track the, the, the licensing of that music uh, in a trusted way. We have a platform called Viant, uh, which is a supply chain platform. And you know, just like I need to be able to trust that $1 was deducted from my account and a dollar goes into your account, um, similarly, I need to trust that uh, a load of tuna that came off of a ship it was not adulterated and maybe didn't have any problems in the supply chain or that you know, some, some coffee uh, that was harvested uh, had fair trade in its origin, which is what the end consumer is paying for, or maybe that uh, something never went below uh, 40 degrees because it needs to be temperature controlled. And if I'm an insurance company, I might be very interested in ensuring that that data uh, is, is all correct. So basically any piece of information that needs to be highly trusted, uh, that you don't necessarily want to trust your counterparty in the transaction to give information about is something we can apply it to. There's been a lot of uh, conversation culturally uh, of how this can truly revolutionize uh, the way not only institutions function, but the way we sort of interact with one another and products that we're accustomed with in day-to-day -day life. Um, but there have also been lots of conversations around how this can empower uh, new electoral outcomes or minimize corruption, particularly with an eye towards the developing world. As you sort of see the long view here, um, what is that hope in terms of the ubiquitous application of blockchain technologies to, to those countries that we don't typically think of as being hyper-wired or hyper at the forefront of, of developing new innovative tools to begin with? Sure, so two of the really uh, important contracts in blockchain are uh, identity uh, and then also the data integrity. Okay. Right and and things like voting and things like uh, title to property are things that are problems in corruption uh, it, or in governments that are, that are subject to corruption, and blockchain map, maps really well onto those. So so for instance, the UN estimates there are about two billion, maybe two point one billion people on the planet that don't have a an identity. They don't have a piece of paper that says who they are. So they can't do things like participate in uh, the financial system. They can't open a bank account. They can't get a loan. Um, in, in many cases, they also couldn't vote on something, for instance. Um, and so one, one promise of blockchain technology is that we will give the opportunity to, a lot, to anyone who can use a smartphone, essentially, uh, which are coming down a lot in price and I think will be accessible to pretty much everyone on the planet uh, sometime pretty soon. Uh, it, it gives them a chance to have an identity. And when you think of an identity, one way we think of it is a piece of paper that the government gives you. Another way you can think of identity is as a set of contracts about how you behave and who you are. So that could derive from, for instance, members in your community uh, giving you uh, reputational kind of scores or just vouching for you, essentially. That could mean that over time, 
I behaved in a way that is analyzably, verifiably in, in good standing with the rest of my community. So we don't, you know, I think we need to move away from the idea of only a government giving you a piece of paper can be an identity. And once you have that, that identity, then you can start to uh, behave in ways that require trusted networks that normally aren't accessible in uh, especially emerging markets. So for instance, uh, I spoke with the former prime minister of Haiti recently. Uh, he told me that after the, the hurricane there a few years ago, right. all of their land titles literally washed away into the ocean. And suddenly you have five different people claiming uh, that they own a particular piece of land. Um, land registries, land titling systems are, are, are often the target of corrupt governments because it's an easy way to move around the uh, one of the very few assets that people in emerging markets actually have. Um, and so having a, a, an irrefutably correct record that can't wash away and can't be altered by anyone that doesn't have sort of the, the correct authorization to do so um, is one way, for one, to have less corruption in the world, but two, to actually enfranchise uh, a group of people that uh, might only have land or, or might have never ha even had land as something like collateral to a loan. It, it allows broader participation in the global financial system for extended groups of people. Um, so I think uh, those are those are pretty important aspects of, of what this technology does. And if I mean, that's not only an incredible promise, but it is, as we were saying at the top, um, particularly against the backdrop of a world like, oh, sorry, of a, of a convening like the UN General Assemblies, where you have one of the most foundational institutions in, in organized civil society, that of government, um, you know, convening. This has the prospect of, of challenging a lot of traditional institutions. Have you noticed when you talk to either lawmakers or um, uh, banking institutions, just any kind of entity where this technology has the, the ability to upend the traditional interaction? Is there a, a reticence of adoption or a, a sense of threat? Um, or is it more an eagerness, like in the example of the, the Haitian prime minister, of trying to, to really, we can't get there fast enough? What, what sort of the feedback that you're getting from the world of arguably um, uh, those that are not read into what this technology can do, given that the technology may, in fact, impact the very work they do day to day? So we see reactions from governments uh, and international institutions that are really across the board. So when, when we first began all of this work, uh, one of our hesitations was that we thought we would, we would receive large pushback from financial institutions uh, that enjoy their entrenched uh, positions. And, and I've, I've largely found that not to be the case because uh, smart, well-designed institutions realize that they need to disrupt themselves in order to stay relevant. Um, but that's, that's more sort of on the private sector. Um, in, in the public sector um, and, and in larger international institutions, I, I've seen on both sides. So you saw a few months ago, Lagarde from the IMF uh, point out the fact that uh, it's normally the purview of central banks to control money supply. Right? And if we get to the point where there are other people contributing to the money supply or other, other groups, maybe decentralized groups that don't have individual controlling mechanisms, um, then it, it challenges the existing structure. Um, I would also go so far as to say that uh, part of what governments do is they ensure trust, right? The reason I would put a, a company in the United States, in New York or in Delaware, uh, versus a country that 
had a regime change two years ago or something is because I trust that the institutions there operate correctly. And I can trust that what a court decides and uh, what it says in my contract are going to be enforced by the courts and the police systems and the regulatory environments. And uh, those, those are valuable for businesses and those are normally the purview of governments. Governments normally uh, separate their purview by physical borders. But I think as we move into the world of blockchain and as we move into a world where uh, you know, we have things like special economic zones, I think are one step in that direction, where sort of voluntary participation in uh, constructs around governance that are maybe not necessarily with their borders drawn at a physical border, but more drawn at a logical border. And you see blockchain starting to take up some of the reins of uh, what would normally be the purview of a court system. Then I think you know we might rearrange a little bit the burden on governments and the burden on, on some institutions, and it might rearrange a little bit. Um, I think I think while lessening cost and, and by, by at the same time making everyone wealthier and happier, it might rearrange that sort of structure that people rely upon to enact and administrate a, a lot of our, our business and our economy, and I think that will that will shake things up a little bit. But but I I, I see. Many forward-looking people embracing that idea all over the world. I, I think that important um, concept that you raise of trust uh, is really a vital aspect to this whole pursuit of, of both cryptocurrencies and blockchain technologies. And um, you're a lot closer to it as the chief strategy officer at Consensus to what that trust can really amount to, or frankly, how we can grow leaps and bounds beyond current trust in institutions we may have today with this with these tools. Um, but undoubtedly, when people hear about blockchain or they hear about Bitcoin and their average passersby, maybe they're a little bit more of a layman understanding of it, um, there may not be a, a trust in the promise quite yet. Or similar, similarly, you'll also see uh, you know, TV shows like HBO Silicon Valley, maybe satirize uh, Bitcoin and applications of cryptocurrency. Culturally, the words have very much pierced through the veil, certainly in American discourse, and, and it sounds like around the globe as well. How do you actually, as a leader of an organization that is a, a pioneer and at the forefront of building new tools and enabling others to build more tools, how do you kind of market or convey that trust? Is it a matter of having you know, conversations like this where we sit down and, and speak to the elements and its applications and its promise? Or is there something else required? So I think there are a couple of kinds of trust at play. One, one kind of trust is the kind of trust that I have in the legal system. Uh, just I know that it will execute correctly. Uh, and what we look at from a technical perspective, from a, from a, a logical technological perspective, is that these technology platforms actually reduce the need for trust because, because it's decentralized, because there's no central control point. Uh, you would have to have essentially more than the majority of actors behaving badly for that system not to behave in a trustable manner. Right? And that's what we mean. Often we even say trustless, meaning that I know, I know that the platform will execute correctly. I know that my contract will automatically be executed in the way it's written down. And so that's one of the value propositions of this technology. The other definition of trust is, uh, I think you mean when you hear of uh, exchanges, for instance, being hacked uh, uh, that, that trade Bitcoin or Ethereum, for instance. Um, that kind of trust, I, I think, is really just a, an educational problem, and it's really just about information uh, 
moving into the the public. So, you know, if if the New York Stock Exchange, for instance, got got hacked, some of their computers got hacked, or Swift, uh, a Swift transaction was hacked maybe a year or two ago, where the Bangladesh Central Bank lost, I believe, eighty million dollars due, due to a hack of the Swift network. No one sits and questions. Well, is you know is is Swift and, and the fundamental technology that underlies the traditional banking platform is that trustable? Um, we've we've gotten past that point because it's become it's become sort of synonymous with with the incumbent banking world. Um, I I think that we'll reach a point soon. One where uh, may, maybe the the general populace understands a little bit more um, why the technology is minimizes the need for trust. But then two, I think that uh, people will realize. Any, anything that you've heard narrative-wise that decreases your trust that something like an exchange being hacked is really sort of like it's sort of like a website being hacked or like one company being hacked, not the whole internet being hacked. Uh, that's an analogy I use a lot. So I think uh, eventually we'll reach a point where blockchain is as seamless on your phone as Facebook or Snapchat. You don't really have to think about the fact that you're using blockchain at all. Most consumers really just care whether something makes their life easier or something is cheaper or better. They don't care that there's a huge database underlying it and, and exactly how it works. Um, a lot of people in this room probably don't know how a light switch works, but but uh, it, it, you know they use it every day. And uh, I I think I think we'll reach that point where um, it's really pervasive. For anyone following um, any type of new tools, new technologies, and frankly, game-changing ways in which we live our lives. Sam Cassett's name will continue to be core uh, to this grand experiment around blockchain technologies. So thank you for, for taking the time, for being here today. You are the chief strategy officer, as we said, at Consensus. What's next for the company? More of the same. Uh, <laughs> I think what's next for Consensus is that we're growing very rapidly. Uh, we just reached about 1,100 people. And uh, I, I think that this technology is getting more mainstream. Uh, more consumers are going to understand this and use it. Uh, and the, the governments and the NGOs and, and the institutions of the world are starting to understand this. So uh, I think we will see governments start to adopt this technology. And we will see consumers simultaneously adopt this technology and suddenly it'll look like the internet. It'll be everywhere. Thanks so much, man. Thanks for joining the pod. Appreciate Thank you it. so much. This has been American Enough with Vikram Iyer. American Enough is a production of Mouth Media Network. Contact Vikram with your comments and questions at 844-4-VIKRAM and connect with the show on social media at American Enough. Theme music by Chris Thomas. Episodes available at AmericanEnoughPodcast.com and everywhere the best podcasts are found. To learn more about Mouth Media Network and how you can partner with this podcast, visit MouthMediaNetwork.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts, callers, and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Mouth Media Network. No portion of this show may be reproduced, published, or rebroadcast without the express written permission of the producers. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.